Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 29 of Attitude Check. Today we are excited to have Dirk Draper as our guest. Dirk is the Chief Executive Officer at the Chamber of Commerce and Economic Development Corporation here in Colorado Springs. Both Brent and I really enjoy this conversation and he has a lot of wisdom to share. And something I've been thinking about as we head into the new year is, what is my theme for the year? So really thinking through and trying to figure out what what is the word this year that I'm going to be focusing on and really applying to every aspect of my life? Um, and it's been fun just setting goals and reflecting on this past year on 2019 and looking ahead to 2020. I know for both Brent and I, it's going to be a year full of life and full of fun and also probably full of challenges as every year is, but I'm looking forward to it and facing it with gusto. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Dirk Draper. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day. Engage with your community, effect change, and produce impact. I'm John Mark Ratzbinner. And I'm Brent Sabati. And this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having, but aren't. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attitude Check. Today we are so excited to have Dirk Draper as our guest. Dirk is the Chief Executive Officer of the Colorado Springs Chamber of Commerce and Economic Development Center. So Dirk, thanks for being here. You are welcome. I appreciate the invitation to join you guys. Absolutely. And like always, we like to start off with an icebreaker question. Okay. And since I did a little bit of background research, I heard that you enjoy bird watching and birding. So the icebreaker question today is, what is the coolest, most interesting bird that people don't know about? Hmm, That's a good question. So I'll answer for locally since we have a local audience. And um, this is a bird most people know about, but they don't know some interesting things about it. And that's our our magpies. Hmm. Um, They're... They have a very complex social network within the family within a family of those birds. Um, they're loud and they're noisy, and if you pay attention to what they're doing, they're communicating with each other. Uh, they're a member of the corvid family with crows and jays, and they use tools. They just have uh, they're, they're just they're very smart birds, and so most of us think of them as uh, many people think of them as a nuisance, but if you watch, they're pretty fascinating creatures. Hmm. That's really interesting. So those are those ones with the white stripes, right? You see flying around, and they're they're black and white. And if you look really closely, kind of an indigo bluish green. Yeah, um, on the west slope they call them generic crows because they're <laughs> no, just kidding, but because they're black and white, they have really long tails. They're mm-hmm. not quite as big as crows. They're bigger than blackbirds, but they're black and white. Yep, and their wings flash uh, that, those white patches as they fly. Interesting. So before we really jump into it, do you have a, a favorite bird that you like to view in Colorado? Uh, oh, wow. That's a really good question. I'm going to say, so I do have a favorite species. Um, I've been a bird watcher since I was six or seven years old. And I got hooked on birding uh, when m- my family and I helped nurse a kestrel back to health. A, a kestrel is a small falcon, a little bit larger than a robin. Um, if you go to the Air Force Academy and you see the falcons they have in their captive falcon program, they actually have a kestrel. It's the smallest falcon. And um, we nursed it back to health. We released it back, to in, back into the wild. And just being around that, having the opportunity to touch and feed and, and care for the bird really sparked my interest in uh, the avian world around us. That's super interesting. I can only imagine how 
awesome it must have been as a, a young boy to be able to nurture that back to health and see it grow and then release it back into the wild, especially, you know, a small hawk seems pretty cool too. It was, it was pretty special. I have a, one of my prized photographs is an old Polaroid photo of my mom and me sitting and I'm holding the kestrel on my finger, feeding it a piece of raw hamburger. And for me, it's just a, a, a start. A couple of years ago for my birthday, my wife got me, a, a local watercolor artist, um, got me a picture that he painted for me of a kestrel in flight. So that's kind of, that's the one that sparked me in, in that interest. So from that experience as a boy, did that ever um, put an idea into your head to go into falconry or doing something like that in the future? Not falconry specifically, Brent, but I came really close to being a wildlife biologist at one point in my career. Or excuse me, I should say at one point in my life. When I was, um, I'd say, early high school years, I was thinking about that. And after a long, serious conversation with my parents, realized it's a hard way to make a living <laughs> and um, not a particularly lucrative, lucrative career path. So what I've chosen to do is make that out a hobby. We're, my wife and I both are very active outdoors people. We, uh, we both enjoy birding and enjoy a lot of uh, the world that's around us outside our homes and businesses yeah that's awesome and that's a, a great segue into uh you know the beginning of your career so tell us a little bit more about how you started off and how you got to where you are today sure uh, so i'm an economist by training um, i have an undergrad degree in agricultural resource economics um, excuse me agricultural economics and a master's degree in natural resource and ag economics um, the master's degree is from Colorado State. My undergrad's from University of Missouri. The first 10 years of my career, I'll tell you in three blocks. The first 10 years of my career was in banking. Um, I uh, worked both in ag lending and in commercial lending. And then um, after that period of time, I went back when I was in my early 30s and I went back to graduate school and, and transitioned that into, um, I worked with a federal agency, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and did regional economic modeling of endangered species protection mm. for a number of years, and then transitioned into consulting for almost 20 years and worked with private sector companies uh, doing environmental impact assessments, including a number of projects around here. Um, we moved to, my family moved here to Colorado Springs 16 years ago, and I was with um, what was then CH2M Hill, an engineering company. And I did environmental permits for plans that our engineers designed. And then for the last four years now, I've been at the Chamber of Commerce and Economic Development Corp. Um, and am the, as you identified earlier, John Mark, I'm the, I'm the CEO there. So kind of three careers, finance, uh, that economic modeling and environmental impact studies, and then uh, for the last several years, leading a business membership organization. So tell us a little bit more about that transition from, you know, you put into three different blocks. So block mm. one to block two, obviously there's a little bit of a industry shift there from banking. Absolutely. Um, so what uh, sparked that transition and change in industry? And was that an easy decision for you or um, was it you know something you wanted to uh, take on? Yeah, so we were, my wife and I, um, we did early midlife career changes. We, she went back to grad school first. We, we had an incident in her life where that made us both stop and reflect on, on what we were doing and where we were going with our careers. And, and we really asked each other and we asked ourselves, is this what we want to be known for? Is this what we want to do with our lives? And we both concluded it wasn't. And um, we both both decided to go back to graduate school. So we did that sequentially. She went back. She got the wildlife biology degree as a master's. <laughs> um, and I went back, and that's when I got my, my master's in natural resource economics. We both wanted to work in an outdoor field in something in the environmental industry. And it was a 
it was a, a catalyst because of personal circumstances, and we both managed to do that. We came out with two college, um, two master's degrees, and no debt. So we worked well. carefully, and of course, it was before we had kids. You guys were talking <laughs> earlier about your own experiences and how how busy life gets with mm-hmm. those different uh, those different stages. So, and then the the second career. Uh, the second career change into what I'm doing now was actually a pretty easy one. I had I had a, a background in banking. I'd been in the community for about a dozen years already and had been on the board of directors of both the Chamber of Commerce and the Economic Development Corporation before the two organizations merged and had been involved in some community initiatives. I knew a number of our elected leaders in the community, and CH Hill did a lot of work with uh, both the city and the county and the state. And so it, it opened a lot of doors. Um, I'd gotten to a point in my career with them where I was going to travel all the time or move, and I didn't want to do either one. And the opportunity came up at the Chamber and EDC, and, um, and, and here I am. And that background, the connections I had in the community, the backgrounds in in um, commercial lending and the backgrounds in regional economic modeling are all really pertinent backgrounds to the work we do at the Chamber and EDC. Take me into a little bit more detail about that conversation you had with your wife when you were both deciding that, you know, what we're doing now isn't what we're really passionate about and what we want to be doing. Because for a lot of our younger audiences, that's a question that they grapple with. You know, do I kind of chase the money right now and try and hustle and save, or do I go after my passion and try to make that work? So. Um, I guess more specifically, one, that conversation, how long did it take? Was it over a couple months, a couple years? And two, what kind of discussions and self-talk did you have, I guess, with yourself or with your wife? My wife made that decision within about a 90-day period of time, went back to school and was and was on her way. The, the decisions were, I'd say the conversations, Brent, were over a... I don't know, 30 or 60 day period, been a long time now, uh, 30 or 60 day period, but she was enrolled at CSU for a master's degree, um, within 90 days of when we, when we made that decision. And it was uh, a lot of soul searching. Um, a lot of us, um, probing each other's hearts and probing each other's minds about what were we interested in really? Okay. If you really could do anything, what would it be? And this was before kids, we were, um, we had two incomes and we said, we can change all this. We can change everything that we're doing. And it's actually a piece of advice that are, that's an encouragement, I would say, to college students today is um, your careers will be, will be decades long, and it's highly unlikely that you will do one thing for all those decades. <clears throat> and, and don't be afraid to reinvent yourself. Don't be afraid to explore and do different things. For us personally, it also worked that um, we pursued some of our interests avocationally, just as hobbies. Uh, it's hard to make a living as a bird watcher. So <laughs> I do that on my own, and I volunteered a number of ways and with a number of organizations through the years to do that. Uh, my wife currently, her work is at an equine uh, a therapeutic riding center uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's run by the Flying Horse Foundation. Uh, she started there as a volunteer. She grew up on a ranch. She grew up on horseback. She'd been a teacher. She'd worked with kids. And the Flying Horse Foundation is just, um, I think, one of our hidden gems in the community for the work mm-hmm. that they do to make uh, uh, therapy, equine-assisted therapy, available for uh, people with a, a wide range of issues that they're dealing with in their families. So started out as a volunteer role, and it's turned into work for her. And she's as happy as she's ever been with work. That's super interesting. And remind me, what was your wife doing before she went back to grad school? She also has three careers along the way. Okay. So we've, um, in our conversations, we'll, we'll maybe get around eventually to uh, tell you a little bit about um, 
perspectives on on students and perspectives for them because our three children are 20 uh, just turned 23 and just turned 25 so we've had a lot of conversations with college students in our world as mm-hmm. they finished and started their careers she was also in finance uh, for about not quite as long as I was for about eight years and then she worked in um, with the fish and wildlife service as a an education program uh, prisoner she developed education programs for mm-hmm. them and she was a house housewife uh, she was a mom to her kids for about 15 years um, and was then went back and, and taught in school. She taught in District 20 as a um, almost a full-time substitute teacher. Mm. And now for the last two years, she's been at Flying Horse Foundation in equine-assisted therapy. So started in finance and then worked in teaching, I'll say that broadly, uh, including a, a classroom of three, our three kids, and then now working in equine-assisted therapy. So I'll have to say there's not exactly a defined path that y'all took. It was kind of just winding and... You it with. makes more sense when you look backwards than it did looking <laughs> forwards. If you asked either one of us if we'd be doing this when we were in our 20s, didn't have a clue. We did, we did not see that future. So, um, yeah, it's been fun to be surprised by some of the opportunities that have come along the way. And it sounds like some of that, well, for both of you, it came through volunteering to start out with you on the board for the chamber and then her on the just volunteering at the... At Flying Horse Foundation. Uh, John Mark, you're exactly right. Um, that's... That's, I think, uh, one of the beauties in a city like Colorado Springs. You you can find an organization. Whatever your interests are, whatever your skills are, you can find an organization where you can volunteer, you can give back to our community. And it's a great way to learn. It's a great way to uh, feed your soul as well. Hmm. So like you mentioned, Dirk, uh, looking backwards, it seems like a more logical progression. Um, but now that you're here, uh, if you could go back, you know, it started it sounded like you started from going with a, a more practical career path yes. to a more passion, interest-driven career path. Huh? If you had the opportunity, do you think you'd flip-flop that? Oh, that's an interesting question, Brad. <laughs> if I could go back in time and, and viewing the path, I would have gotten into economic development a lot sooner. I think it's a fascinating field. Um, I've, I'm enjoying the work a great deal that we do at the Chamber of EDC. I'm really proud of the role we play in the community. I love the people I work with and the companies we get to work with. Um, we're in the middle of, of so many initiatives and issues and new employers and growing employers in this region. It really feels like we play um, a, a valid and valuable role for, uh, for both people and, and the, the city. So for both the city and the residents here, the citizens here. It almost seems like a role in economic development would be one of those more practical choices. But for you, it it's just catches your interest so much that you would choose to devote more time to that up front. So. Well, one thing that's I think that has changed in the last 40 years of, of my career, almost 40 years of my career, is there's so many more ways to make a living, at least so many different options, um, than when I was in my 20s. And... I've never heard of economic development as an opportunity, even though I had degrees in economics. Um, it was something I, I don't know where the field has been, frankly. I haven't had time to go back and research that. But um, I, I think uh, we live in an amazing country where there's so many ways to make a living that um, if, you're, if you're not satisfied with your career, if you're not satisfied with what you're doing, look around and explore. And I, I just I think we're in a, an incredible time, an incredible place for those opportunities. So for a college student or maybe even a high school student moving into college who is really interested in exploring a career in economic development, one is having an economics degree the best route to take? <laughs> and two, mm. is there um, what opportunities are there outside working for 
um, you know, the Economic Development Center or the city or something like that, that sort of institution. Sure. Um, what was the first part of your question? Uh, the degree. Okay. Do you, would you recommend anything in particular? I, I loved, um, I really enjoyed the courses that I took in economics. To me, it's the, it's the physics of social science. It's connected to everything. Um, it's really, many people have a misperception that economics is about finance. It's about dollars and cents. And really, it's about utility, utility and efficiency. And so there's so many different ways to apply it. Uh, so many different ways to use those concepts and things that um, that you learn along the way. You realize that people make choices that have nothing to do, whether it's a career or a home choice or where they live. Um, people make choices that have nothing to do with money uh, quite often. They make a lot of choices that have a lot to do with money, but they make many choices that are, have have deal with the intrinsic uh, elements of those decisions. I think it's a great field. And uh, the emergence in recent years, Brent, of uh, behavioral economics, I think, is even more uh, is one of the more interesting um, subgenres inside the economics field. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend any uh, career paths as far as if someone just graduated with an economics degree? You know, do they look for jobs in the city? Do they go back and get their masters? Um, where do they start off in that career path? There's a lot of different ways for it to be applied. A master's degree is not necessary. Uh, for me, it has been helpful for my career because it helped. It was a it was a pivot point. But I know people with economics degrees who work in uh, teaching, who work with uh, land development companies, who work with uh, economic development companies, and so there's lots of different ways. People in banking, for example, that economics is just a broad background mm -hmm. to um, that I think opens doors in a, a lot of different directions. So, sorry, did you, did you have a question? I know I'm kind of... Dirk, with your position at Chamber and EDC, you do a lot of leadership and high-level strategic planning. Um, so what, what are some of the, the learning lessons that you've had from being in the leadership role that you're in? John Mark, your, your framework for the question is around... Um, strategy and strategy development. And, and so I'd say um, we make the best decisions as leaders. We try to make the best decisions with the information we know at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we adapt as, as we go from there. The military has an expression, various versions of it, one of, one of which is the battle plan's perfect until the first bullet is fired. And mm -hmm. that's true with, that, with uh, strategic plans as well. We make the best decisions and then you adjust as you go and you use that as a roadmap but but not too narrowly confined in, in terms of um, in terms of tactics that you use or in terms of specific actions that you take along the way um, so so there's one a second one I'd say is um, all of us is smarter than one of us and so I I appreciate the collective wisdom of getting different minds around the table and, and talking about that I did that with with my staff this afternoon with my my direct reports at work and we had an administrative question that I could have decided to just proceeded. And I just I put it on the table in front of him. I said, I, I want your input on this because you'll have some different perspectives than I do. And you have some different knowledge than I do. What do you think? And it led to a, a really interesting, uh, very helpful 40-minute conversation that, as I said, I could have made that decision myself. It serves multiple purposes. That process served multiple purposes. One was getting their wisdom and their insights. And one was um, giving them the opportunity to provide input into a decision that will affect the organization. And then they feel listened to, mm -hmm. and they feel like they've contributed to that decision and, and where we go. So there's a couple. <laughs> Those are both good lessons. One, 
this first one that you talked about was really being willing to make changes to the plan mm-hmm. after you start, um, knowing that that's going to have to happen. And then the second one is just getting everyone involved, mm-hmm. making sure that your people have ownership for the, the workplace that they're in. Yes. Both of those have been, those are things that I try to follow and I have found that they, um, they have served me well. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So as far as leadership, obviously, like you mentioned, a plan needs to be flexible to take into account things that change over time. But when you became CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, membership was at a lower point in its history. And then after your, well, you're still the CEO, but you know, after several years, you've built that back up into, you know, really good levels. So as far as taking leadership into account with a growing organization, do you have a framework to use um, to kind of match that economy of scale as organizations grow? Because obviously the approach you have with a a smaller organization is going to be vastly different than Mm -hmm. if you have an organization where you can't see everyone every day. You can't ask all of the uh, opinions of your employees or people that you work with. Mm -hmm. So we've got just a little context for my response. We have 22 employees and we're on our way to I expect by this time next year we'll have 25, so we'll, um, we have some key positions to fill, or we have some open positions to fill. Um, part of that growth, the, part of the success of that growth, Brent, has been um, uh, just having a, a team of people who are really passionate about what they do. Uh, um, the best employees that, that I work with on a daily basis, if you ask them what they love about the job, it's giving back to the community. It's working on behalf of the community. It's they, they really, they love Colorado Springs. They love our region and they want to help people find jobs. They want to help companies find their places and, and really contribute to the, the really strong success we're experiencing in Colorado Springs right now. That leads to, um, sort of my approach has been hire good people and get out of their way. And, and I really try to do that. They, um, my team works uh, very well independently, but we work well as a team also. And so I try to set the example of um, asking others for input, um, listening to what they have to say, um, and, and uh, watching and observing and asking what works and what doesn't and being open to changes. So your last job was at CH2M Hill. And that's right, an engineering company? That's correct. Okay. So, you know, you talk about kind of hiring good people and getting out of their way. Um, where did you learn that from? Because I, I'd imagine with an industry like engineering where everything is so detail oriented, it kind of freaks people out if there's people aren't watching everything that people are doing. So, where did you get that leadership style and how did that develop over time? In, uh, so with the, the three careers that I've had, I'm a generalist, so I'm not I'm not smart enough to know all the details of any one of those industries that I worked in. So it was essential for me to rely on other people. Um, and I also learned pretty quickly that if you rely on bad advice, it turns out poorly for everybody involved. And so it's been a matter of, of um, n- number one, trial and error. No, number one, being a generalist myself. Um, as an economist, I don't have accounting skills. I, all right, I don't know FASB and GAP and all those things. I need somebody who knows those. Um, I don't know how to run QuickBooks. We've got a controller at the office who does our finance, and she's terrific at it. So I, I don't know. I don't know enough to to do that by myself. And the breadth of work that we have here, and really for most of the jobs that I've had, the breadth of work that's expected of us, um, it's not a, a one person operation. It takes a team of people to work together. 
um, it's also an incredible burden to put on yourself to expect yourself to know everything. Um, and I've never been a very good micromanager. I figure we've all got our own uh, reasons for being there and our own things. I've, I've, I've never met anybody in 40 years of work who said, man, I wish my manager would pay, you know, would pay closer attention to my work. <laughs> Most of us want to have credibility and independence and, and autonomy and, and really do good work and thrive in an environment that we, we like and care about. And most people want to do a good job. Most people really want to contribute well to where they work. And so I, I guess it's been through trial and error, Brent, that I've gotten to that point. On the note of hiring people. Yes. What do you look for as good qualifications? Because you know you, your philosophy is hire the good people and get out of their way. So what qualifies a good candidate to you? Well, my record's not perfect, um, and so I think it's one of the that's led me to conclude. I think it's one of the hardest things we do in business because m many times we're making a, dis a decision about hiring someone on a 60-minute interview or a 90-minute interview or a couple of hours where everybody's on their best behavior. It's a, it's a false construct. It's a contrived situation where um, we're, we're all on good behavior and you don't get to some hard questions. And so I, I, think it's, I think it's very difficult to do. Um, I try to include others in a decision. Um, I, I, I got to that point. Brent, I think it's one of the hardest things we do to find good people in our interview constructs that we that we do today, our interview structures. Um, I watch for people who are passionate about their work. Um, I watch for people who are uh, who know something about uh, the the position. They know something about our company and the role we play. I look for people who have curiosity about the big picture, who are engaged in things, who um, have hobbies outside. Um, of course, they've got to have technical skills. That's that's a given. But looking for somebody who's a whole person who can contribute to the to what the team needs. And so I try to, uh, for myself and for teams that I lead in interview processes, think ahead of time about what are we looking for. It's a little bit like. What attributes are we looking for? It's a little bit like going to an auction and knowing what your price is. Because if you don't know what your price point is, you can you can bid, you can get caught up in the excitement of bidding and end up with something that you didn't intend to buy. You can do the same thing with employees and get caught up in a somebody who's very charismatic or somebody who's a good storyteller, but they didn't answer the questions that you needed to know about their competencies or their capabilities for this job. So, I like to know ahead of time what are we looking for. Clearly defined job and responsibilities, as well as um, some, some personality traits that um, you could call it the airport test. I've heard it called that. Uh, if you were stuck with this person for four hours in an airport on a delayed flight, would you enjoy that time or not? <laughs> and I think the chemistry of a team coming together is, is really important. I, I know uh, we recently went through a hiring process, and for the first time I used um, a professional assistance to do a personality assessment. And it, it, it was a very good experience, and it's I will use that again in the future for senior hires, uh, and maybe for maybe for all hires, where we had a third party um, do an assessment through a personal interview and through some uh, computerized testing, as well, and gave us back what they saw as strengths and weaknesses and their their ability to fit in our organization. It was fascinating to see trained psychologists helped with this process or, mm. or ran the process. So I'll use all the help I can get with things like that. The other thing I do is um, we don't hire anybody at the chamber in EDC from one person interviewing them. 
I try to have multiple touch points. I try to do um, panels usually, and I try to get um, if if there's time and we have the resources to do this, I'll try to get a, a couple of different panels to meet with candidates or meet with applicants for jobs and just get a sense: Are they going to fit here? Are they can 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 they do the work? Hmm. And will they fit well with our team? So it sounds like you use a lot of different tools and concepts because nowadays you hear a huge emphasis on culture and finding that right fit for the kind of social, cultural piece of the office place. But have you really enjoyed um, doing that personality test? Because, you know, with different leadership courses and whatnot, you know, a lot of kids coming out of college are taking things like uh, the Myers-Briggs or mm-hmm. the DISC assessment and things like that. So is mm-hmm. that an aspect they should be paying more attention to in their search for a career, not necessarily to cater it to a company, but to just understand themselves better and plug up those holes. It was really interesting. And we came out of, it was interesting for me, as I heard about the assessments um, uh, that we used in our most recent hire, I wanted to go back and take the test and see if I was qualified (laughs) for the job I'm doing. I thought that was pretty cool. I would probably learn some, I know I would learn something about myself through their feedback and their observations. Um, as far as as far as some personality testing, I think self awareness is a beautiful thing, and I, and whatever tools we can use to do that, whether it's a um, a self self run thing like uh, Strengths Finders, there's online tools for all of those that can be done relatively inexpensively. The more we know about ourselves and understand ourselves and how we work and how we work with others, um, that just pays dividends regardless. It'll pay dividends in work. It'll pay dividends in your personal life. It'll pay dividends probably in how, just how you self-manage and self-regulate. I Absolutely. I think it's there's some great tools. When I got hired on at Pro, that was one of the things that they did for me. They did, uh, they call it Caliper, which I, it's a very, very in-depth strength and weakness type finder. Okay. Um, but it also, it helped him, my boss, figure out whether or not I was a good fit for the role based on this, whether or not I had the experience or not, would I be a good fit based on my personality? And then also do I interact well with the team? So it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, so Dirk, how has mentorship been of an impact in your life? How has it helped you to get to where you're at? It's shaped so, it's shaped me in so many different ways. Um, I, I can't point to any individual who's been a lifelong mentor for me, but I've had lots of lots of mentors at different points in my life that I've drawn from. And in some cases, they shape little things. In some cases, they shape big parts of me. Here's a, um, I don't know, maybe this one falls in the middle. I, I still remember as a, I mentioned my first career was in banking. I lived in Greeley and was a, a freshly minted, uh, wet behind the ears banker. And, um, I knew through our church, uh, one of the senior vice presidents is I think the executive vice president of the biggest bank in town. And I watched him introduce himself to people. He, he was, he was a very humble individual and he would introduce himself as saying, Oh, I work at this bank. And that's all he would say. He wouldn't say, I'm the executive vice president at the largest bank in town. And he, um, he just had a way of, um, diffusing his ego or removing Mm -hmm. his ego from situations. And I just, I admired that humility that he showed of making other, other people feel comfortable in, um, in the circumstance or in a conversation. He was not, he, he was remarkable at doing so. Mm Um, uh, I, was shaped by uh, watching Ralph Peterson, who was the CEO at CH2M Hill when I started, and just how he 
uh, how he spoke to employees. This was a company with, when I left, there were 26, 27,000 employees, and he would have all employee meetings. Of course, they weren't in person. They were telecast. And he would talk about the importance of getting to meetings on time because it's respectful to other people that you're meeting with. And we're here to serve our, we're here to serve our, uh, our clients. We're here to serve our customers. And here's, here's the way we should con- conduct ourselves. Just some, some really plain, um, you know, plain spoken advice that was, uh, very mindful of the role we play in other people's worlds. Um, people who were just, consummate craftsmen and craft women at their at their trade and just watching people who um, who take their role very seriously whether it's uh, making furniture or whether it's um, interviewing somebody for a loan request or whether it's um, I uh, teasing out the facts in a delicate situation to come to a good conclusion. Just watching professionals work and trying to learn from um, a little bit from each situation, each encounter that I have. So some of the biggest things it sounds like that you've learned is mostly from people that were humble and served mm. outward as opposed to mm. only focusing on themselves. Probably so. That's probably who I, that's a really good observation, John Mark. I hadn't, you put that to words in a way that I haven't done that before. And I think that's a fair statement. I'm already going back through like all my interactions with people and trying to figure out different ways that I can be a little bit more humble based on just the examples that you've provided. So thank you. (laughs) Mm. You're welcome. So as far as exerting a good personality and and being a leader, Mm. obviously that dynamic is very different if you're experienced and tenured in your role and career versus if you're first starting off. So do you think it's still a good strategy for a young professional to have that air of humility? Or do you think it's more um, pertinent for them to go out and really have a higher energy, put themselves out there, and really try and take uh, control of their own situation? What a, real, what a good question, Brent. As with, as with many things in life, there's a balance there. Because um, humble to the point of... Um, Self-destruction isn't humble. That's just that's just self-destruction, and yet um, the 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 flip side is no better. Um, uh, bravado where it's not warranted is is just as destructive in a different way. So I think it's I think it's a balance, knowing our place and uh, valuing others for for what they bring and who they are. I I think that's the the path to try to craft because we do interviewing is hard for most people because we're really putting ourselves out there and and most people um aren't comfortable or i should say many people aren't comfortable because they have to talk about themselves in uh glowing terms which uh, can be hard to do especially if we're coming into a job there where we think we may be reaching for uh, for an opportunity or reaching beyond our capabilities and to convince somebody else that you know you can do this without sounding cocky about it is um, is a fine line to tread yeah it's definitely interesting because it is a natural tendency for people to be happy to talk about themselves but it almost feels weird when people have to in a sense go in an interview process and brag about themselves so it's yep. it's like you said a fine balancing act there mm-hmm Kind of diving back into your role as uh, CEO of the uh, Chamber of Commerce and EDC, from an outside perspective, you see that as just this monolith, this entity in the community. But take us into a little bit more detail and tell us what does a day of the CEO of the Chamber of Commerce look like? So a, a context, 
for that, we've got four areas of responsibility in the community. Um, one is economic development. It's helping local companies grow and helping bring new companies to our region and helping find workforce for both local and future companies, uh, current and future companies that are here. The second is working closely with our defense community. It's our defense development. And that's both the military installations and the missions that are here and the private sector companies that support them. We've got about 260 aerospace and defense companies that are um, in the in the defense sector. A third area is in um, advocacy, business advocacy, or public policy as it pertains to the, the economy and, and business conditions. And then the fourth is helping build a strong and inclusive business community through recognizing and promoting our local businesses, through um, connecting them together, through networking and, and connecting business leaders, uh, providing education and training. Um, we had an event this morning with UCCS where we bring together a, a professor and a member from the business community to talk about um, growth and how you scale up a company at a certain pay, a certain stage in its um, in its lifespan. And so those four things um, are represent a, a wide arc of opportunities in a day. First off, no two days are the same. Um, I would say, but the common thread that runs through them is I, I, have, I meet with people all day long. I have very little time sitting at my desk with the door closed thinking deep thoughts. <laughs> and so um, a, a typical day might look like meeting with a member with a, with a question about something they need help with, a piece of real estate or introducing somebody who could provide a service to them. Do you know somebody here who could help me with us? It might be having a conversation with one of our elected leaders at state, local, or federal. Let's say I had a, a phone call with... Um, one of our um, U.S. Senator's staffs about U.S. Space Command coming here. What's the latest that they're hearing? When's the decision timeline? And sharing that news with my staff. Uh, some of it is um, representing us in the community. So three or four nights a week, I'm at events in the community. Uh, might be something with another business association, or it might be an anniversary celebration for one of our companies. It's a, it's a very... Uh, my evenings tend to be full of public, um, uh, kind of the public aspect of this role. Every day is a little different. The common thread is um, I'm with people all day long and usually talking about business and usually talking about um, companies that are growing and succeeding and, and um, looking for opportunities in our region. You mentioned the four different parts, and that's another topic I wanted to touch on because mm -hmm. Colorado Springs, it's a really interesting environment to where you have this huge um public sector government entity with the we military do. installations then you have almost a hybrid of that and the private sector with defense contracting you have a lot of new industries coming in and cybersecurity and space command so how do you manage all of that while still working with new generations small businesses it seems like a really big uh, balancing act that you have to take on and how do you shift focus to make sure you're covering everything Hire good people and get out of their way. Um, <laughs> I, I've got staff who, who focus in each of those areas. And so it's a little bit like playing with a graphic e graphic equalizer on an old stereo, right? Where you, you, okay, let's crank up the bass a little bit. And that's helping helping a local company grow. Okay, we're going to tune that down a little bit. We're going to bring up something because there's a hot issue about uh, something that's being considered in the state legislature. And we need, to, we need to contact one of our state representatives here to talk about a concern that we have for the business community. And it's a chance to talk 
talk with the mayor and his office and some of his key staff about um, a, a company that's looking for uh, job growth tax credits through the state and what can uh, what can our local community do to help them with that application or match those funds. So it's um, it, it really is having a staff who's trained in their their areas. They specialize in all. I have staff that specializes in all of those areas. And it's a little bit like conducting an orchestra, just keeping it keeping it going and keeping it coming together. Um, there's a lot of times, usually my first question uh, to my staff is, what would you recommend? Because they're the experts. They really know <laughs> that field and they really have, they understand the situation better than, uh, most of the times better than I will. So I've got to learn to rely on them and trust them. So within those four parts and all the other uh, portions of your job, do you have one in particular that you're really excited about or that just gets you out of bed every morning that you look forward to? What real, boy, in one area, I would say it's working with our local companies. I, I have so much respect for men and women who own businesses and who get up every morning, lace up their shoes, walk in and open the doors and sweep the floor and they go home later than I do at night because they're, they're um, they're, they're getting a company started or they're keeping a company running. And and one of the aspects of this job that I've enjoyed the most is just seeing the diversity of, of companies that make up a city of our size. We've got a we've got a gross metropolitan product of about $33 billion just in El Paso County. We have about 275,000 employees who work in our metro area. And so all those people have different ways of making livings and all those companies feed into a pretty self um, well no economy is really self self sustaining these days or self contained these days but we have um, a, a healthy diverse economy in our region um, and just seeing the way it works and meeting new people and meeting uh, hearing what they do and what they create or how they serve others is just a pretty pretty endless um, string of fascinating encounters so as the CEO under your leadership the chamber has seen a lot of growth in both employees, membership, and other metrics. So mm-hmm. obviously that couldn't have been a completely smooth curve of growth for you. So can you tell us about a time either during this position or in your career uh, where you faced a challenge and how that set you up for success and growth in the future? I'd say in the first nine months that I was in this role at the Chamber in EDC, I realized how big the challenge was and how big the, the role was much bigger than I had anticipated when I stepped into it. Um, particularly the, uh, the, the public arena aspects of the job. And I, I learned, this is going to sound funny to your audience, but, um, what I learned was there are times where you fake it till you make it. I was not comfortable with what I was doing, but had to put on, um, the, a, a bold face and had to put on, um, an air of competency that I didn't necessarily feel at the time and get through it. Um, and that, that lasted for a number of months until I started to settle in and really start to feel comfortable with what, uh, with what the expectations were and what the responsibility was and realize, you know, you know, I can do this. I can do this job. Uh, and so that, that was one. And I've had a number of experiences like that in life where I was completely uncomfortable and couldn't let anybody else know that. And just kind of had to muscle through and had to work it until I could, um, uh, I, I could, I could settle in. It, it brings to mind, uh, an expression of Mark Twain's who said, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove any doubt. So there's times <laughs> where I just had to, um, 
just just nod and keep going. And you think about it later and you learn from it and you apply what you learn the next time around. Dirk, in your leadership and leadership positions in general, what do you think one of the most important character traits have is? And also, for a young person coming out of college or a young prof- budding young professional, what is an important character trait that they can have? Because I imagine that those two things are different. In, in some ways they are, John Mark. Um, I think for anybody, a sense of curiosity is an extremely important trait to have. Um, the, the, I think the bigger the sense of curiosity you have, the more you know what you, the more you know what you don't know. You, or the, you, the more that you know, there's things you don't know. And you, so you learn to rely on others. Um, I think a sense of curiosity makes life a lot more interesting. Um, if you're a lifelong learner, you're never bored. <laughs> um, if you're a lifelong learner, if you have a sense of curiosity, there's just the world of um, opportunities that are open to you. We could point to a number of things. I started mountain biking when I was 40. I wish I was curious enough to have uh, discovered it in my 20s, but it wasn't invented <laughs> yet. Uh, but it's something that I have enjoyed greatly in my life in, in different ways. Um, but I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have experienced that and so many things in my life. I wouldn't have experienced it if I wouldn't have gone along with somebody who invited me to do something that I'd never done before just to try it. That's been true for career opportunities, and it's been true for some uh, personal experiences I've had as well. Sense of curiosity, top of the list. We're going to transition more into our bullet questions. So, okay. Dirk, what is one resource that's helpful for you in everyday life? Okay, I'm the CEO of a business organization, and I'm going to say the Wall Street Journal. Um, Great piece for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, the world's changing so quickly that I think it's important for us to stay attuned to the world around us. Um, The Wall Street Journal um, covers not just Wall Street, but covers really global news as well. And if you haven't read it, listeners, um, pick up a copy, especially the weekend edition, and take a look at it. Um, So... Um, from uh, from that's one aspect of it is the um, the news and current events. Second, it's an extremely well written piece of journalism, um, and I think they are very fair in their reporting. So I think it's an excellent um, example of writing style, and I think those communication skills are very important for us. And in our world, of course, it's very important to look at a more of a macro level uh, things that are happening in a nation and how they will and in the world that eventually will affect us here in Colorado Springs. Hmm. Wall Street Journal. You're the second person that's recommended us. Nope. Recommended that to us. Okay. The other one was the mayor. Oh, oh good. <laughs> I'm in good company then. Um, and what is one book that you found very helpful? That's an impossible question. <laughs> that's an impossible question. Um, I'm going to say two. One, um, I think for the wisdom and everything else, I think the Bible is. There's one book. Um in a in a broader sense, anything written by David McCullough. He's a historian. He's a just an eloquent writer. And finding uh, the way he connects events to show not just what happened, but why it happened and what happened as a result. David McCullough, anything he's written. Hmm. Any uh, good starting points for him as far as anything you'd recommend? Good introductory book. Mornings on Horseback. It's Many of his books are... Um, Five and six and seven hundred pages long because they tend to be big biographies. Mm-hmm. Um, second one I'd say is um, what was the one about the Wright brothers? Um, his biography of the Wright brothers was a fascinating story. It happened 
in the lifetime of people, world-changing event happened in the lifetime of people who are still alive today. And these guys, it's a story of uh, creativity. It's a story of perseverance. It's a story of um, world-changing impact by two pretty simple brothers in Ohio who um, wanted to figure out how to fly. So it, there's some great lessons in that book as well. Well, Dirk, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So thank you for being here. I'm complimented you would ask, guys. It's been a pleasure talking with you tonight. Thank recommend you. one parting piece of guidance, um, the best way to connect with you, and mm. then we'll say goodbye. Okay. Um, text me or uh, or call. That's the best way to uh, to get in touch with me. And let's go grab a cup of coffee or a beer and, and get connected. A ship is safe in a harbor, but that's not what ships are for. So be adventurous. Be curious. Try something different. Um, don't be afraid to change your careers if you find yourself on a path that you don't enjoy and you're not proud of. And um, don't be afraid to fail if it doesn't work. Um, there's many, many opportunities uh, f- for us in the, the work world. You can always go back to where you were. You can always try something, try a third route. But that would be mine. Ships are safe in a harbor, but that's not what ships are for. Hmm. Well, again, it's been such a pleasure. This is John Mark, and this is Brent signing off. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Again, Dirk Draper just has so much wisdom, and I really enjoyed talking with him. And I don't know if y'all picked it up, but there was a lot of unspoken leadership or not fully acknowledged leadership just in how he spoke. He was very intentional in repeating our questions back to us to make sure that he understood what we were asking. He used our names a lot and that's something that I noticed and something that I'm going to start working on applying. He's very active in his listening. Uh, but then just all his leadership lessons, the, where his life has been and where it is now, it was just really inspiring and very helpful for me uh, and also for Brent. Be sure to like us on Facebook to stay up to date on all things Attitude Check. And subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast hosting platform because let's face it, you know you want to. And if you have any questions or anything you would like to hear on the podcast, feel free to email us at attitudecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time.